Well, scripture this morning is coming from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 28. Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. What we've seen so far in this letter is that the gospel of Jesus Christ had come to Thessalonica and it had been embraced by a number of people And a church was birthed in this vibrant city. And so, it's not that unlike our church several years ago, several decades ago. uh, The gospel went forward in this city, and it was embraced by a group of people, and this church was birthed. And just like any organism, uh, there is a need for growth and maturity. And so Paul speaks into their situation here in Thessalonica, and speaks into ours as well. And what he does is he, he serves up a divine meal for us to feast on so that we can grow, we can be nourished, we can mature. And he serves it up in various courses, one after the other. And now we come to the final course that he is going to serve up to this church in Thessalonica and this church here in Augusta. And what we've seen so far in this chapter is he's been preparing to serve up this final course as he's told the church that there's a certain way you relate to your leaders, your pastors that are among you. And then he says in verses 19 through, actually verses 14 through 15, he tells the church how they are to relate to one another. We talked about this last week, how we relate to one another as believers within the church. And then As he serves up this final course in verses 16 through 28, he's going to tell the church how it should relate to God, especially as we gather together in public worship. And what he does here is he tells us first in verses 16 through 18 what the church should do. And then in verses 19 through 22, he tells the church what it should not do. And then finally, in verses 23 through 28, He leaves the church with some final instructions. And so let's start with what the church should do. And Paul writes in verses 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And let's just take these one by one. He says that the church, especially when it gathers together, when we are together we should rejoice or we should be glad. Now, why should the church rejoice when it gathers? Why should we be glad? Well, I hope you can 
I hope you can answer that question. I mean, the reason, the fundamental reason why we can rejoice and be glad, especially when we get together, is because we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. Through His life, through His death, through His resurrection, we are reminded of the gospel. And that is fundamentally our primary cause for rejoicing. And there are times when the church gathers and a more somber mood is required. But more often than not, there should always be this call for rejoicing. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 95 verses 1 through 3, he says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. And so knowing God, if you know God, through faith in Jesus Christ, that should be your primary cause for rejoicing. And one of, the, one of the qualities I love about this sanctuary as we gather in this building is the amount of light that is let in. So when you come in, this is a bright place. You know, I came in just, I guess it was maybe 10 minutes till 11, and the lights were still off, but it was still so bright. I cut the lights on, you can't even tell much of a difference because this is a bright place. And the brightness of this place, I believe, helps us usher in this attitude of rejoicing as we reflect on the light of the world, Jesus Christ, and what He's accomplished for us. And so I wonder for you, when you reflect on the work of Christ, does it cause you to rejoice, be glad? Does it allow some rays of optimism and hope come into your soul? You know, when you hear beautiful music being sung or played, does it allow you here as we gather to reflect on the beauty of Christ and what He's accomplished for you? See, the church, when we gather, we should, we should be about rejoicing, being glad because of what Christ has done. So even in the midst of a broken world and as the pressures of life, they mount up, there's always a reason for the Christian to rejoice. And it's because of what Christ has done. Next, Paul says, as the church, as we gather, we should be characterized always by prayer. And you may say, well, why should we always be in prayer? Why should prayer characterize the church? And I think, basically, when you think about any relationship, any relationship requires communication, does it not? You have to have communication for a relationship to thrive, and it's no different in our relationship with God. So when the church gathers, we should not only talk to one another, but we should talk to God. And that's why, even at the beginning of the service, we have a time of prayer where we go to the Lord together. Uh, when we, before we uh, take up the offering, we have a time of prayer to thank the Lord for what He's done, to confess our sin, to uh, pray that we'll give in a, a joyful way. At the end of the sermon, I'll pray again, asking God to do a mighty work in our hearts and change us and make us more like Christ. When you gather in your Sunday school classes at 9.45 in the morning, on Sunday mornings, you probably pray together. And on Wednesday nights, we gather as the church at 6.30 so we can pray for one another and pray for those around us. And then at 9.35 on Sunday mornings, uh, you may or may not be aware of this, but a few of us gather here every Sunday morning 
And you're welcome to join us. It's open to everybody. But 9.35, we pray. We pray for you. And we pray that God will do a mighty work in this service and in our church. Now let me ask you this question. When you, when you bow in prayer with the church, are you present before the Lord? Or do you allow that time to just cause your mind to drift to a different place? I want to encourage you, when we come together to the Lord in prayer, that you would be present before the throne of God and not allow your mind to take you to a distant place or some other place or some other worry or concern, but that you would come before the Lord and join us as we pray together. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that the church should be characterized by prayer. And then thirdly, and you, you all know this verse, you're familiar with it, many of you, Thirdly, the church should be characterized by thanksgiving. We should give thanks in all circumstances. Now, notice though that Paul does not say that we should give thanks for all circumstances. That would be somewhat problematic because uh, there are many circumstances that are filled with evil and brokenness, right? And so we're not thankful for that. But he does say that we can give thanks in all circumstances. And there's a couple reasons why we can do that. One, as we gather together for the church, we can be thankful. There should be this thread of thanksgiving that runs through our services because of what God has done for us in Christ. We mentioned it before, but fundamentally it's what He has accomplished through Jesus Christ on our behalf that should allow this fountain of thanksgiving to spring up in our souls. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 103, verses 2 through 5. Psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Rejoicing and thanksgiving, they all flow from the same stream. We give thanks to God because of who He is and what He's done for us through His Son. I love it when the psalmist says, forget not all His benefits. Don't forget what Christ has accomplished for you. And as you remember that and replay that in your mind, thanksgiving will result, both individually and corporately as we gather as the church. Now there are many things we can be thankful for as well. For example, you may be thankful to the Lord that He's allowed you to be able to pay your debts or pay your bills and many other small things like that. And that's perfectly fine and and all right. And we should give thanks for all things. But at a deeper level, we should give thanks to God because of the debt that was paid on our behalf through what Christ has done. And that should free up thanksgiving to flow from our mouths to His ears. Now there's another reason we can give thanks. And I'm very aware that, you know, life gets dark at times. The clouds move in and the shadows come. And it's hard, it's hard to give thanks. 
Lisa mentioned it earlier. Alex mentioned it in the opening announcements. But God is at work. God is at work in your life. God is at work in the life of this church. God is at work in our city, in our country. He's at work around the world. He's building His church. He's constantly active. And God is for you, not against you, if you are in Christ. And so therefore, that should be a foundation, a basis for giving thanks. And then notice what Paul writes at the end of chapter 18. He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, how many of us have asked the question, what is God's will for my life? I think we've all asked that question numerous times. Well, I know usually when we ask that question, we're asking, you know, what job should I take? Who should I date or marry? What decisions should I make? But there are answers to that question in a general sense as far as how we approach those decisions and how we approach life. And we see it here in verse 18. What is God's will for my life? Well, according to Paul, God's will for your life is that you be a rejoicing, praying, thankful people. That's God's will for you. And not because your life is free from suffering, but it's because of the suffering that Christ endured that allowed us to inherit eternal life. And this should cause even the most burdened and even the most pessimistic among us to have a ray of hope and optimism to shine in so that we can give thanks back to God. Well, we see some things here that the church should do. We should be a rejoicing people, a praying people, a thankful people, but there are also some things the church should not do. And we see it in verses 19 through 22. Paul writes, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now let's take these as well, one by one. First he says, we should not quench the Spirit. And this word quench was normally used to describe uh, the extinguishing of a light or the putting out of a flame. And the Spirit he's referring to here is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. You know, it is the Holy Spirit that is working to present the church to Christ when He returns. And it's the Holy Spirit who is at work in you, if you have faith in Christ, to make you more like Jesus. And Paul tells us that we should not quench the Spirit. And on the flip side of that, or the opposite of that would be, we should not quench the Spirit, but that we should obey the Spirit. We should follow the Spirit's leading. We should submit to and follow the Spirit instead of trying to extinguish His leading by throwing the water of our unconfessed sin on His flame of guidance. See, what happens when we become aware of our sin, when we sin against God and we refuse to confess that sin, we quench the Spirit. In other words, we hit the pause button on our relationship with God. We don't lose our relationship with God, but we hit the pause button. In in other words, our growth in that relationship is affected. 
And you all know this to be true in any other relationship, whether it's a friendship or a dating relationship or a marriage or a parent-child relationship. If there is unconfessed sin in that relationship, if one has wronged the other and they refuse to humble themselves and confess that sin and seek reconciliation, that relationship can go no further. And it's the same with the Lord. If we are unwilling to humble ourselves and confess our sin and turn from it and turn to God, then our relationship with God and that growth in that relationship will be, will be stunted. And so the church, both individually and corporately, we must keep short accounts with God. As He reveals sin in our lives, we need to confess it and we need to turn from it. And this confession and this repentance, it's like pouring gas on a flame of fire. You know, when we confess our sin to God and we turn from it, it brightens and strengthens the Holy Spirit's pull and effect in our lives. And His direction and His work becomes much more clear. So as a church... Let us not quench the Spirit. And I want you to think about this. Is there any sin in your life that you need to confess? Is there anything that perhaps your pride is quenching the Spirit and you need to humble yourself and just confess the sin to the Lord? He knows it already. Just agree with Him about it. Thank Him for His forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And allow the Holy Spirit to continue that sanctifying, that maturing, that growing work in your life. The Holy Spirit wants to do a great work in your life and through your life. And the only requirement is that you would humble yourself. You would hold your life with an open hand. And you would allow Him to do the work that only He can do. So the church, let us not quench the Spirit. Let us be a confessing and repenting people so that we can become both individually and collectively what God wants us to be. And then Paul tells us that as the church, we should not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now what does Paul mean by prophecies here? Now there are some differences of opinion, but I'll tell you what I believe. I believe Paul is referring to those within the church that have been given special insight into the Scripture and its application into the life of an individual or a situation. And so it's a unique empowerment by God. Someone's able to speak into your life in a certain way or into a situation in a certain way that aligns correctly and accurately with the Scripture and its application. And I would draw a distinction between the prophecy that he's talking about here and Scripture in general. And the passage I would go to to uh, argue for that distinction is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he tells them that God has given certain things to the church. And he says in verse 11 that He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so the way this works itself out in the church is that we in the church need to be open 
to guidance and correction that comes from others within the church. We need to be open to be corrected, to be guided, to be taught from others within the church. And Paul tells us that when we receive such guidance or correction, that we should first test it and hold fast to what is good and then abstain from what is evil. And I think you can equate here what is good with what is true, what is right, what is good. And so that brings us to another question, and that is, well, how do you know? How do you know if the teaching or the correction or the guidance that you're receiving is true and good? Or is it evil? Well, quickly, I want to give you five ways to filter what is communicated to you. Okay? The first one is the Scripture filter. You know, we need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17. Luke tells us when Paul and Silas went to Berea, they began to teach them there about Christ and the gospel and what God was doing. And it says that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so when you are taught, whether it's from me or Sunday school teacher or from someone else, or someone corrects you or challenges you or gives you guidance... Just go to the Scripture, filter it through the Scripture to find out if it's true or not. Second test comes from 1 John 4, 1-3, which says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the, se- the second filter here is all about Jesus. You, know, you need to make sure what is being taught you, uh, the instruction you're getting, the guidance that you're getting, lines up with what the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus Christ. The third filter is the gospel filter. You want to make sure that the teaching, the instructing, the guidance that you're receiving does not run against God's free and saving grace that comes through Jesus Christ. If the teaching adds anything to the gospel, it needs to be rejected. And the fourth filter deals with the character of the one given the teaching. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 17, He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And the fifth filter is the edification filter. And this is found in 1 Corinthians 14. In other words, is the instruction, the teaching, uh, the guidance you're receiving, is it? going to build the church up. Not just you individually, but you and the church as a whole. Is it edifying to the church? Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3-4, through he says, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who prophesies builds up the church. And so hopefully these filters can help you discern what is good and what is 
not good, what is evil, so that you can hold fast to the good and abstain from what is evil. But notice, once it has been tested and it is found to be right and true and good, you have to receive it. You must receive it for it to do its work. And so the question is, when you hear the Scripture taught, taught rightly, are you willing to receive it? Or if someone corrects you, are you willing to receive it? Are you willing to receive instruction? Or is your pride quenching the Spirit? You know, if we're going to be a a rejoicing, praying, thankful people, we must be open to be instructed by God's Word. And then finally, as he concludes his letter, Paul pronounces a blessing on the church and then gives a few final instructions. He writes in verses 23-28, through 28, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And you see Paul's heart here. And you see his love for them flowing out of his prayer for them. And he prays that they will continue to grow and mature and be ready to meet the Lord when he returns. And he encourages them that God is fully capable of carrying out His promises. Now do you believe that? That God is fully capable of carrying out His promises and like Paul says, He will surely do it. Some of you need to hear that and receive that and meditate on that and believe that. That God is capable to carry out His promises, to sanctify you completely, to finish His work that He started in you, and He will surely do it. And that is why, as Christians, we can be a glad people, a rejoicing people, a praying people, a thankful people, because we've experienced this grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's why at the end of the letter he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Because it's only by God's grace that we enter a relationship with God. It's only by God's grace that we grow in our relationship with God. And it's only by God's grace that we will be enabled to meet the Lord when He returns as a friend and not an enemy. Now the question is, have you experienced that grace? Do you know that grace? Do you know that you have a relationship with God through what Christ has done for you? And so as we gather, hopefully every Sunday morning when we gather, I pray that each of us would experience at least some sense of gladness and rejoicing as we reflect on the work of Christ and who He is and what He's done. That we would taste just and experience just some thankfulness and have a spirit of gratitude as we think and reflect about what God has done and that we would be a praying people, that we would be in conversation not with just one another but with God Himself together. 
And so now let us be that type of people as we conclude with a word of prayer. Let us pray. God, we are glad. We are rejoicing this morning as we reflect on the work of Christ. And we realize that we have been given that something that only You can give us. We could not earn it. We could not grasp it ourselves. But only through Jesus Christ can we be a partaker of eternal life. It's only through Christ we can have our sin forgiven. It's only through Your Holy Spirit that we can become who You want us to be. And it's all by grace. We didn't earn it. And we're glad. And we rejoice in that fact. And now we come to You in prayer thanking You for who You are. Thanking You that You saved us. That You extend salvation to us through Jesus. That You complete what You start. That You fulfill Your promises. That You will do it. And we give thanks, Lord. And we just ask that by Your Holy Spirit, I pray that You would empower us each and every time we gather, that we would be a rejoicing, praying, thankful people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.